Forgive me, I'm going to put my phone up here. I teach mostly three-hour classes. So my internal clock says we don't get a break for about 75 minutes. Find things go better if this just reminds me of how long I've been going. So uh, that'll work a little bit better for us. Uh, like John, we are new to the Valley. We moved here uh, May 10th of last year from Southern California. I taught the last four years at Talbot School of Theology. Uh, the question I get most often is, what is a provost? No one knows what that is. No one knows a provost. It means I'm the chief academic officer. I take care of our faculty, our curriculum, our accreditation, and all those things there. Uh, by training, I'm an Old Testament uh, teacher, and that's what I've mostly done for the last 20 or 30 years. And so it's, it's my privilege to open up uh, Jeremiah with you today. I want to take you to a circumstance that I am quite certain most of you know nothing about, but we might have some experience with this as parents, and that is the stubbornly defiant child. I, I'm certain you have never seen or experienced this, but it might be something that we know a little bit about. You've stared at the toddler, perhaps, desperately tired, weeping, out of control, and you're saying, just lay down and take a nap. And you know the response, no. I'm not tired, I don't need a nap. No, no, you really need to lay down. Or the child who is hungry but refuses to eat the food that you've placed before them. Or the teen who desperately needs to talk but refuses to open up. Or maybe a spouse who is burdened and troubled but just won't sit down to speak with you. A brother, a friend who you know needs something in their life, but their answer is no, I won't do that. This is the place where we find the people of Israel at this time, at this point in the book of Jeremiah. They have been told what they need by Jeremiah over and over again by the prophets who have come before him. And Jeremiah is challenging them about their lack of reception of his word. And they have replied to him, no, we will not. And so I want us to explore this part of Jeremiah this morning where the nation, the children of God, are refusing what they need, the hope and the help that God has offered them. And so God has stepped in with discipline and with judgment. And I really have two goals for this morning. One is, I'm going to help you come back to these kinds of places in Scripture, because they think oftentimes there's a little bit of a disconnect for those of us who are in Christ. We look at these passages and say, that doesn't necessarily apply to me anymore, because I'm in a good relationship with God. I've been saved by the gospel, by Christ's work on the cross. And so we look at these and we tend to kind of run past them, because we put them in the box of things that I needed before I came to Christ. So I want to think a little bit today about how these passages work for those of us who are in Christ and what we gain and glean from them. But I also want to take the challenge of this passage directly for us because it does speak to us today. And so I want to apply it for us today, but I also want to lay a path and a ground for you to approach these passages on your own in the future. So here's the backdrop, and in addition to what we read from chapter 2, let me just read these two verses from the end of chapter 5, immediately running into our passage today. This is Jeremiah 5, verses 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? 
So let me just unpack this a little bit for you. The prophets are prophesying falsely, and although in chapter 2 we read about them prophesying by Baal, for the most part the false prophets in the time of Jeremiah are actually saying things that Jeremiah says, Amen, and I wish that was true. They're on the whole not asking people to worship Baal instead of worshiping God. They're saying things like, God didn't really say you're headed into exile. They're saying things like, our exile is going to be really short and we'll be back home soon. They're saying things like, no, no, the word from God to you is peace, peace, when the real word of God is judgment is coming. So for the most part, they're saying things that in some context might be true and might be things that God would really say. They're the things that we would prefer to hear rather than the hard things. They're the things of, if we were to look at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God pronounces his name to Moses, what they're mostly giving the people are the things from the first verse, chapter 6. 34, verse 6, God is going to say to them, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All true, all spoken by God of himself. But God goes on to say in verse 7, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. They want to have, in essence, the love of God without the judgment of God. They want the salvation of Christ without the cross of Christ. And this is the message that they're preaching. So on its face, there's nothing wrong with the word that they bring. But what they end up doing here is the people have received, in essence, a medical diagnosis of death. You are fatally and terminally ill and the false prophets have brought snake oil. This will heal you. Take this. Okay, let's go a little bit further. This is what the prophets are doing. The priests rule at their direction. So the priests should be the ones not receiving new revelation, but taking what has been revealed and applying it to their current circumstances. Taking the law that had been revealed by Moses and giving it to the people for their current circumstances. They should have been the ones who would have said, that's wrong, because look at what God called us to in the covenant. And he promised us that if we broke the covenant and we disobeyed that judgment would come, that's not the right message for this time. But instead of doing that, the priests have said, we like that direction. I think we'll stay there. Peace, peace is good for now. So the prophets are preaching a message that's on its face is plausible. The priests are saying this is the right way to go. And before you throw the leaders under the bus, the next line is, my people love to have it so. This sounds pretty good. I'm okay with this. I can have people tell me peace, peace, or judgment is coming. I think I like peace, peace. This is a time when the ABCs of churches are going well. Attendance is rising. Buildings are being built. Cash is coming in. On its surface, worship looks good. 
God's question is, what will you do when the end comes? We all know with the child, with the teen, with the spouse, there is that moment when the end comes. And you have run as far as you can run, and now we have to stop. And this must come to an end. So God asks the question, what will you do when the end of your rope is reached? I pull the rug out from under you, and now the end comes. That's where we pick up in the passage that we're headed for today. So I just kind of want to walk through a little bit, um, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 that lead us into this. So as we head into this and think about it a bit more, what we get here is kind of a rehash of the false prophets and what they're doing about this terrible thing that they're taking on and God's promise that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming in the form of war. The Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar, who you remember from the book of Daniel, is coming and he is going to crush the nation. He's going to siege the cities and warfare is on its way. He tells them that this is going to be like a, a grape harvester going through the vines, clearing all the grapes, coming back through it again to make sure I did not miss any. This is how thorough and complete the judgment is going to be. And then he begins to talk about that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the children, the young men, the husband and the wife and the elderly. It's all of society. Judgment is going to be poured out. Why? They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And then here's the key diagnostic for where they are. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They do not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall. That defiant toddler, we had one. I won't name which one of our children. We, we had one who would come down after bed and go, I had a bad thought about you. And just had to get it off of her chest. We had another one who would go, your Bible? I haven't seen it. I haven't touched it. I don't know where it is. And it's in her hand. And she's like, I just, no, I don't know anything about that. That's that not knowing how to blush. I'm blatant and I'm bald and I'm forward in my sin, even when everyone knows exactly what's going on. This is where we step into our passage this morning, beginning in verse 16. Now, if I just stop here and I think about this and I process it, what do I expect? I expect a heavy dose of God's holiness. I expect another round of here's the judgment that is coming. I expect maybe if there's a move towards something good, that will, it will be a promise of the Messiah. And in fact, what we get is a passage that is especially tender. It is a call to reflection, to repentance, and to obedience. And so I want us to look this morning at the way that God engages his people at this place when they are saying, we will not. And so we're going to spend the majority of our time here in verse 16. So we're going to kind of read it slowly and work our way through this. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Notice the verbs, the series of commands that God gives here. The first thing that he tells them is that they need to stand. 
And you have to think about the primary image in the Old Testament is that our life is a path that we walk on. We walk the paths of our lives. And so repentance in the Old Testament is usually thought of as an about face. Whereas in the New Testament, the primary metaphor is that you change your mind in order to repent. The primary metaphor in the Old Testament is that you change the direction you're walking. You've been walking away from God, so you need to turn and walk back to God. But notice where he begins with them here. He does not call them to walk yet. He calls them to simply stop moving. He says, just stand for a moment. Will you stop walking away from me? Now, this is interesting because just a couple chapters before, in Jeremiah 4, verse 6, Jeremiah says, don't stand, run. Disaster's coming. Right? So you should run. But here he says, do that. Just a chapter later, in chapter 7, verse 10, he's going to describe what their normal posture of standing is. They will do idolatrous things. They will refuse the word of God. They will reject Jeremiah's prophecy. And then they will stand in front of the temple and say, we're saved. Because God will never destroy his temple. He has to save us to save his own face and reputation. That's what they've been doing. But God calls them here to stand. Here it represents them stopping to reflect, to hear, and to consider the word of God. It is the, when you have to get in the face of the toddler and say, stop, stop, stop. I, I just need you to listen to me for a minute. I know you don't want to go lay down. I know you don't want to eat this. But trust me, this is exactly what you need at that moment. It is not yet a turn to the right path, but it's a cessation of digging a deeper and deeper hole. It is a call to stand still and consider, and it's a call to stand at the roads or by the roads. Some translations will say at the crossroads. It's like you are at yet one more fork in the road. And before you just continue on the path that you've been on, will you just stop and will you just consider where you've been and where you're going? So the second command that he brings to them in is to stand, and these are commands in the Hebrew. It is stand, and then it is look. I want you to survey what you see. Chapter 2, verse 19, the same verb is used. Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord. Or in 2, verse 23, how can you say I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the balls. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. Almost always in the book of Jeremiah, this verb of looking or seeing is paired with a verb of knowledge. And that's what it means. It means to think, to consider, to know and understand what's going on. So stop walking in the wrong direction and consider where you are and where you might go from here. It's God reaching out and saying, will you just listen for a minute? Can we have a conversation? Now we come to the one that I think perhaps may be hardest for us. Stand, look, ask. 
ask requires humility. Guys are not known for this always, right? We are stereotypical, the ones who won't ask for directions. I never ask someone in a store where to find something. I'd rather wander for a half an hour finding it on my own. Ask requires me to admit a handful of things here. I'm standing at the crossroad and I see all the paths I might take in front of me. And if I'm honest, I'm not sure I can even tell you anymore what the good way is. I don't know that I can pick it out and identify it from all the roads that I might choose from this place. I'm not sure anymore that I know what that path is. Do you know? Can you show me where the good way is? Because I'm pretty sure I'm not on it. But I don't have confidence anymore that I can actually identify it and know what it is. This is a statement of humility to reach out. This is also a statement that it requires the community around me to walk on this good road. I need someone around me that when I need to ask, what does it look like for my life to be different? That there's someone there to bring me the word and to say, this is what the good road looks like. Because I may not be able to find it on my own. And so the Lord calls us to do this for one another, that we would show each other where the path is. Now, what is this path that they're asking about? They're asking about the ancient or the old paths, the way in which they used to walk. And I think really what he's referring to here is the law that was laid out for them at Mount Sinai. We might think about it this way. Moses would say this in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 and 16. See, I have set before you today life and good death and evil. I've laid out for you two paths in which you might walk. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. That's the old paths of obedience that we've left. So are you willing to reach out and ask what that way looks like to get on there? And he goes further to clarify this. It's the old paths, and, and, and what are those? That's where the good way is. That's the way that is pleasing. That's the way that reflects the goodness of God. Now in context, the good path is not easy and it's not light. Let me take two minutes and I'm gonna ruin some scripture for you in hopes that it might actually be more useful for you. If we were to flip a few chapters and make our way to Jeremiah 29, some of you are thinking about running for the exits now because this verse is on your fridge, on your wall, right? I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Do you know what those plans were? <laughs> 70 years in exile. The best place you can be is under the discipline of the Lord. Why? Because he disciplines those that he loves. So if you reject his discipline, you reject his love. So the best place for you to be is under his discipline. That means that this good way is not necessarily light and easy. It's not a path without suffering. It's not a path where we are not confronted with our sin. It's not a path where we just walk my, just kind of wildly through life. 
It's a path where God disciplines us as his children because he loves us. It's a path where we might live our life under discipline and only see the hope of coming out from that for our children. That's what was happening in Jeremiah's time. But this good path is the one that leads to the Lord's blessing. It's the one that leads to his love and his care. And so here it is one where we are called to look carefully and consider. Will you stand? Will you look? And will you ask? Now, nine times out of ten, we might stop here. There's one more verb that we, if we stop, we end where almost all of us do. All right, what's this next verb? And walk in it. You see, I and John have a professional hazard. I study the scriptures for a living. I teach them for a living. So almost every day I am in the Word and I'm thinking about something that I'm going to preach, something that I'm going to teach. And the greatest hazard for someone who does that on a regular basis is that I am able to stop. I'm able to consider the way of the Lord. I'm able to ask questions of other people, of commentators and, and other brothers who are working in the Word. And I'm saying, help me understand this. And then I deliver it to you. And I don't take... I don't take a single step on that road myself. I could even, like the false prophets, be right about the message, that this is generally something that God might say. This is an acceptable teaching, but it's one that has not yet darkened the door of my own heart. It is not enough to stand and even to identify that's the right road. It's not enough to stand and to tell you that that's the path you ought to be on. I and you and we must walk on that road and walk on that road together. That is what God calls us to do. So the same hazard exists for you. You come to a church that preaches the word faithfully that delivers to you what the good path looks like. And it's easy in that moment to receive it and say, I know what the good life looks like. I know the direction that I should be on. And then to be satisfied with that knowledge, but never to actually take a step on that path. It's the same hazard that we face, that you face, that we all do. That it's not enough to be hearers of the word, as James will say, but we must be doers of the word. And it must live in us and guide us and provide the light to our path that we walk on. This is what God calls us to do. But the passage takes a dark turn. But they said, we will not walk in it. Jeremiah has come and he has given to them exactly what the path looks like and they have refused it. They are the defiant child who says, I will not. I stopped, I considered, I'm done. I'm going my own way. Now get out of my way. And so the Lord begins to respond 
here in verses 17 and following. So let's just read here, 17 through 19. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their own devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. We had watchman imagery up in chapter 6, verse 1. And basically, in our day, this would be like a civil alert siren going off. We spent a lot of our time in tornado country. And you learn to listen for the sound of the sirens because it means you need to be bailing into your basement. Uh, I guess here it might be the alerts going off for Haboob uh, or something like that where you've got to get off the road. Or in California, it's earthquakes that you need to attend to. But the idea is that there's an alert that's coming. And here it would be the alert of warfare. For our country, it would be the equivalent of NORAD going off and saying missiles are in Bound. And then the people saying, we don't care. I don't care that the siren's going off. I'm driving. I don't care that the missiles are coming. I'm going about my day. I don't care that the tornado is upon me. I'm living my life the way that I want. So God says, fine, you can do that. So he calls witnesses, and the witnesses here are important. You see, in most of the ancient Near East, when you made a treaty or you made a covenant, everybody believes in multiple gods. So you would have called on your gods and the other party to the treaty would have called on their gods and you would ask them to hold everybody accountable to this treaty. But in God's case, there's only one God. So what did he do? He asked the heavens and the earth, the place where the people agreed to the covenant to be witnesses. Because the people could always go back and say, there's Ebal, there's Mount Gerizim, and we stood on those mountains and shouted the blessings and the curses back and forth to each other. And as long as those mountains stand, they are a living reminder of the covenant agreement that we made with God. So God calls them back. It says, underneath the sky that I made, you agreed to this covenant. Standing on the hills of the earth, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, you agreed to this covenant. So I want those places to be witnesses. And let's just be clear. This is not my harshness. This is not my anger. This is the fruit of their devices. What they planted, they are now getting ready to sow. I'm not giving them anything more than what they've asked for. What they've asked for is to not be associated with me. What they've asked for is to go their own path. So I'm going to show them exactly what that looks like when you walk your own path and walk your own way. Why? Because they have not paid attention to my words and because they have rejected my law. This is the time to run, or to ignore, or to push back. That time is now coming to an end, because the end is coming. And this is different for us. For them, this is happening in real time. It's happening for them in a way that Nebuchadnezzar is literally kind of over the hill and on his way, and in a few short years, he's going to decimate the city. For us, the feeling of this is different. Because for us, this end comes unexpectedly often, but it comes at death. 
As Hebrews will say, it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. We don't always see the end in our lives here. We don't always know when it is that God will withdraw and say, fine, you can have the life that you want. But we all face that end in death at some point. So, how did the people respond to this message? And I think if we're honest, how are we likely to respond to this? Well, notice what he says here in verse 20. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. God's unhappy with me, so what do I do? I put something a little better in the offering plate. Functionally is what's going on here. So instead of just taking my garden variety offerings, I'm going to go buy some expensive spice that had to be imported. Literally what's going on here. I'm going to go out and get some sweet cane that's really expensive, and God will simply be pleased if I up the game of my formal worship. For us, this is pretty easy to do. doesn't usually look like cane and frankincense, I don't think. But it looks like attendance every time the church doors are open. can look like a healthy offering that I put in the plate. It can look like even time that I spend checking the box in Scripture. Just like the false prophets, almost every legitimate activity can be done illegitimately and sinfully. I can attend righteously or sinfully. I can serve righteously or sinfully. I can spend time in the scriptures righteously or sinfully. It's not the form. It's not that God is rejecting the worship that he commanded them for. Sometimes you'll read that and it's no, 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 this is not God rejecting the sacrifices he's commanded. This is God recognizing what he has done in a number of other places. And probably one of the easiest ones to see this is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice? Right? So I'm going to give you more than what's required. I'm going to pile on the sacrifices, God, so that you will be happy with me. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more, and here's the key, vain offerings. That word vain in Isaiah is oftentimes associated with idolatry. Don't bring me stuff. What I want is you. Not interested in your stuff. I'm interested in you. So if you bring me your stuff without you, I am sickened by it. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Right? Don't attend and think that that will deal with the sin that's outside. Attend to deal with your sin, yes. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You might also look at Amos 5, verse 21, or Micah 6, verses 6 to 8. You see, it's entirely possible for us to do all of the right things 
for the wrong reasons because sometimes the right things are easier than actually dealing with our sin. So a little more cash, a little more time, a little more appearance is easier than opening up to the Lord's discipline, to His rebuke, to the change that is required for that. And so here the Lord rejects that. What is it to me, this frankincense from Sheba or the sweet cane? Therefore, thus says the Lord, look at where he, this is where we end our passage today. Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble, fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. Interesting. We very much expect that this would end in a very individualistic call, right? And it is true, every man dies for his own sin. It's very clear. It's present in Deuteronomy, present in Jeremiah, present in Ezekiel. God makes it very clear that I don't suffer for anyone else's sin. But think about where we began. The false priests, the false prophets are prophesying. The priests are in agreement and the people love it. We rarely sin as one and will almost never be righteous as one. There are subtle ways, whether it's in our families, that my sin seeps out and influences the rest of my family. And then it becomes easier for them to follow my lead in that. Maybe it's the things I do or the things that I leave aside. And they can see that and absorb it and then it's kind of okay. That's all right that dad's there because it makes my life a little easier too. It can happen in the things that we watch, that we read, that we engage in, and we subtly draw other people in. It's very rare that we totally fall on our own, and it's even more rare that we will stand back up on our own. This is a communal endeavor. We have been baptized into the body of Christ. We have been gifted as one body with different members, but I am not my own body. I belong to the body of Christ, and I am only a part of it. So when I sin, I hurt the rest of the body. And when I am in need of healing, I must have the rest of the body. Life is communally lived. And so Israel and Judah will stumble together because they fed the beast of their sin together. The prophets, the priests, and the people have done this together. So this is where we end, right? We stop here, life is happy, we go to lunch, we go home, take a nap. <laughs> I'm hoping that some of you are thinking, I've got to talk to him after the service because I skipped something in the text in verse 16 that we need to talk about. Because there is a fifth command in chapter 16. Stand by the roads, look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, walk in it, and another command, not a result, a command, find rest for your souls. Now, this is the part that I want to unpack a bit for how you think about the prophets and these passages of judgment in your own life. Most of the time when we think about the prophets, we stop with the first four commands, 
right? We're okay with stop sinning, stand still. We're okay with look and consider your life. We're okay with asking and reaching out for help. And we're okay with the command to walk, to actually repent and to walk in the direction. But what we usually miss is God's intention in this. Right? We read it and kind of you almost pass over it in chapter 2 in the verses that we read at the beginning of the service. God's intent for them entering the land was to enjoy it and to find all the good that He had created for them in the land. God's intent in His commands is for us to find life. Right? So this is Jesus' word from Matthew 11. Come, the command, come to me. If you're weary and you're heavy laden and you are in need, then come and find rest. How do I find that? I find it by taking on the yoke of Christ. I don't come to something where I leave obedience behind, but I come to a place where I find that obedience to Him, the rightful master sovereign who comes not with a stiff arm, but who comes and says, I've come to care for your souls and to give you rest. Obedience to him then is the good life. He says it in Matthew 11 as well. Find rest for your souls. Now, it's also easy here in the prophets in a singular passage like this to look at this and go, well, the way I find rest for my soul then is by walking, by doing it myself. But if we had time and we could unpack it all, right? Remember, Jeremiah is the place where God is going to announce most clearly his new covenant that's coming in the blood of his son. He has already announced it, though, back in Deuteronomy. You can watch this in Deuteronomy. In chapter 10, he commands the people, circumcise your hearts. Do the work that's necessary to change yourself so that you might enjoy your relationship with me. And we know that they can't. That's what the whole Old Testament period is going to demonstrate, that they cannot, and law alone cannot do that. So God promises in chapter 30, for exactly this time, when you go into exile, and all of these things happen to you that I've promised, then I will circumcise your heart. That's what Jeremiah 31 promises us, that God is going to do something to forgive our sins. We'll find out in Ezekiel, this is when God makes atonement for us. This is not involving your high priest. This is not involving any of the rituals that you've done. I'm going to take this on myself. We don't know fully what that looks like. We had glimpses of it in Isaiah. That the suffering servant is going to suffer for our sin. And through that suffering is going to bring righteousness to many. But it's not fully unpacked yet. We don't know exactly. So we've got to go and keep working through the history of what God has done. And we find out that this is done in His Son on the cross through his resurrection, and now as he sits, ascended and ruling, this is God's provision for us. So when you read these passages, they are for us in a couple of ways. One is if we can read all of the prophets and see their foundation on what Moses has given, they always include the gospel. They are not separate from or different than the gospel. Because God always lays out, you cannot do this on your own. So when will you actually walk down this path? When I change your heart and I put my law on your heart. And when my spirit comes to live in and with you, 
this is when it will happen. It will happen, and today we would say this, they did not know to say this, it will happen through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's also a call for us to look at all the same things in our lives. We need to stand, to look, to ask, to walk, and to find rest for our souls. So when you read other passages in the prophets, they may not all include the rest for your soul, but it's always there. It's in the backdrop. It's part of when God is the most explicit. When he opens up the doors the most, say, here's everything that I'm doing. Doing it so you'll find rest for your souls. I'm sending you into exile because this is the best place for you to be because I'm moving you back to me. So you have to keep that in mind, even if you land in a passage that doesn't make that explicit. This is what he said he is doing, and this is what he actually did for his people, and it's what he does for us. So even when the passage itself does not make the gospel explicit, or it does not make God's goodness in it explicit, it's always there. It is the soundtrack over which this film is running. So I came to this place today because I wanted you to hear it from Jeremiah that God is after, even in his judgment, to bring rest for our souls. You see, most of us would think that the issue is we need to get rid of God's judgment. But in fact, the truth of the gospel is that if God does not judge, he has no salvation to offer. If he's unwilling to put Christ on the cross and to judge our sin in him, then all that's left is my life to pay for my sin, which means I spend eternity paying for my sin because there's no sacrifice to be made for it. Think about the image of baptism. If you are unwilling to be buried in death with Christ, then you cannot be raised in newness of life with Him. God's grace, His mercy, and His salvation come not to oppose judgment. That's interesting but comes through his judgment, okay? So you have to think about these things together and the way in which they operate. This is what the prophets lay out for us. Does that make sense? So find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 31, 24, 25, we'll put it this way. And Judah and all the cities shall dwell there together when they return from exile the farmers and those who wander with their flocks, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. We understand that language of languishing it is primarily related to drought and to living in a desert where there's no water. We understand the preciousness of water in the valley. Having lived a few years in California, you understand the preciousness of snow in the mountains. Because it doesn't rain enough where you live to give you water to live on. But God has to replenish it somewhere else to bring it to you. God will water the dry and parched soul. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 is worth reading again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the question I think we leave with today is, do we see the commands of God, His demands of our life, as something to satisfy Him, 
or as something that should be satisfying to us. Yes, God is supreme and all-glorious, and we are called to live our lives pleasing to Him. But that does not come without His associated promise that that way of living is the life that would be best for us. Remember, Christ came and died that we might have life and life more abundant than any life we could dream of on our own. So is your portrait of God that He is out for your good? And at the end of the day when we sin, is it because we believe that that life would be better than the life that God promises us? That the life of rest and pleasure is out there where the world would lead us. That's where we'll be happy and satisfied. Or is it in obedience to the commands of God? That's where the good life is. So God commands us to repent. He commands us to obey. But He also commands us to find rest for our souls, individually and together. Because as much as we will stumble and perish together, we will also flourish and blossom together. That is the truth of the gospel expressed both in the Old and in the New Covenants. That's the glory of the work that God is about. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to think about your word and to consider what it is that you are doing in and through your Son, in and through your Spirit in us, and in and through your church gathered together. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to receive what it is that you are doing in our lives. Thank you for your true word that we might live and grow and find rest for our souls in it. It's in your Son's precious name that we pray. Amen.